turn to Philippians chapter 4. Will you do that? Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through. I doubt we'll get all the way through this, but we're going to aim for probably eight verses 1 through 5. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. As you turn it over there, God's going to open up our hearts to the scriptures, I pray, to what it means to stand firm. I don't know if I, I don't have my coffee cup with me. But my family gave me a coffee cup for Christmas, um, a, a real large one, and uh, I'm so grateful to have it. And it's got a verse on there that um, that we're going to use this morning. We're going to see, but the title of this message is "Standing Firm." What does it mean to stand firm? We're partners in the gospel, you know. That's what the Bible says. Philippians chapter one, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Philippian church and. As we've talked about time and again, he didn't confront any serious doctrinal error or anything like that as he did in some of his other letters. Um, and he spoke a, and wrote a book through the power of the Holy Spirit, a book of joy, great joy. We talked about time and again, if you look at this verse and this book carefully in the four short chapters, the words joy, joy, rejoice, and glad appear some 19 times. We also made the observation, though more importantly, that there's another word that appears twice as often. And you remember what that word is? Anybody remember? Forty times this word appears in four short letters. Anybody remember? Jesus. Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. You know, there's a rejoicing that the world can try to counterfeit, but the rejoicing in the Lord is transcendent. It doesn't, it's not a victim to circumstances. As a matter of fact, it's most powerfully expressed in spite of them. And there's a joy that comes, and it only comes in the Lord. So that's our source of our joy. We're partners in the gospel. And we look at this partnership in the terms of the agreement throughout the whole book of Philippians, and we've zoned in on for several weeks the confession of the church. Because the confession of the church, what makes you, if you are, a part of the church, the one church, the church of the living God, is the confession that's made and the revelation that's made by the church in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 3 through 11. And that is that God uh, did not, Jesus did not, uh, um, did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but humbled himself and became a man and took on human flesh and died a substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial, all-sufficient death on the cross, was raised from the dead, is it now at the Father's right hand, and where we will one day Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the confession of the Christian church. That's what our partnership, it, that's what unites us in our partnership, <clears throat> is that confession. And the Apostle Paul did deal with, though, something that was going on in the church that we don't have a whole lot of detail about, but there was some discord in the church, and he deals with it in this verse, in this teaching on how to stand firm. And so let's look at it in Philippians 4. If you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read God's Word in reverence and respect for it? Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, 
with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers who na whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. I appreciate that. Standing firm. Standing firm, when you look at that, and, 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 and the Apostle Paul admonishes this group of believers to stand firm, to stand together, to stand fast, it might say in your version of the Bible, in 4.1. It really has the idea and the sense of a soldier who's standing at his post according to his orders. It's a soldier who's standing there and he's on watch. And this soldier realizes what's at stake. Because the worst thing you can do, and Gary, you have a military background, some of you other people do in here. But the worst thing you can do on your watch, the cardinal sin to commit on a watch, is to fall asleep or to get distracted. Because if you get distracted or you fall asleep or you're careless about your post, then it jeopardizes the lives of others. We have such a low view, sometimes I think, of the priority of the gospel, of the importance of the gospel, because of all the messages that you hear day in and day out, and we're bombarded with them. And of all the enterprises and all the things that are going on on the face of this earth, the only one that's important is the gospel. That's it. Because the rest of them are temporary. You name it. I was just reading this morning. I'm doing my personal Bible time in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm at chapters 1 through 5. And I was just reading this morning something I'd never noticed in that narrative before, and that is that the Apostle Paul said the rulers of this world are going to come to nothing. Every kingdom and every dominion in the world under the sway of the God of this universe, the little g, is going to come to nothing. But there's an eternal kingdom led by, carved by, crafted by, created by an eternal God who's in charge of that. And the way to enter into that kingdom is through the gospel. And the God made a way through the substitutionary atoning death of His dear Son. And the message that we have as the church is the gospel. And the only thing that matters is the gospel. You can miss it anywhere else you want to miss it. And it might have short-term consequences in this life. But you miss the gospel and that has eternal consequences. And he gives us some keys on standing firm in here in the next couple of verses that we're going to go over. God willing, this morning. And the first one we're going to look at is the key to standing firm in our partnership in the gospel is to make it a priority to be spiritually unified. Spiritual unity. The Bible says here that after the Apostle Paul said, My beloved and longed-for brethren, who are beloved, my joy and my crown, I implore you, there are two women in the church, Yodia and Syntyche, and they're in some kind of personality conflict. We could assume from this narrative that more than likely the conflict that they were involved in had nothing to do with doctrinal differences. And the reason we could assume that is is because if there were doctrinal differences involved in this conflict, the Apostle Paul would have taken a side, called it out, and said, here's what you're to do with it. What we can assume is that this could be reduced to nothing more than personality differences, people who clash, who just can't seem to jihad, can't seem to jail. And there are plenty of people that we come in contact with that we just don't jihad with. 
we don't seem to gel with or find it hard to simply because of our makeup our is is just different our perspectives are different but here's the problem that conflict that personality conflict had mushroomed and spread like a cancer throughout the church and that's exactly what winds up happening and see when when that happens then people who get get people who are informed about the conflict and get perspectives on its source are forced to do one thing that can never happen in a church and this is it they're forced to take a side you can't remain neutral you're going to have an opinion you're going to have some kind of perspective and you're going to wait your perspective one way or the other. You're either going to be in Yodia's camp or Syntyche's camp, but you're not going to remain neutral. You're going to have an opinion. Even if you just keep it to yourself, you're going to have an opinion. And the reason the Apostle Paul said we've got to get other people involved is because there was church-wise knowledge of it. If it was just isolated and it was just the fact that they're going to agree to disagree, they're going to love each other and spy their differences, the Bible says it's to man's glory to overlook an offense. And that they're going to continue to just plug away because they're serving a great God and a greater purpose, and that is the gospel. And they're not going to let their personal opinions get in the way of that. But not so here. These could have been part of the handful of women that were having a prayer meeting when the church was started. More than likely, these are two faithful believers. As a matter of fact, they were faithful because he commends them for being faithful and laboring with them in the gospel. And so therefore, it's a church-wide conflict. It becomes known throughout the church and people are forced to take a side. When you're forced to take a side in the middle of a conflict, you can reckon, you can know this. If it's not doctrinally related, if it doesn't have to do with someone acting divisively, or it doesn't have to do with some immorality problem, the side you take, no matter which one, is not God's. It's not God's. Don't you remember when Joseph was about to go into the promised land and the captain of the Lord's army came up to him? And it stood right in front of him and he said, Whose side are you on? I need to know that. You only remember what he said? He didn't take a side. He said, Man, we've got a transcendent battle going on here. Your thinking is real puny. There's a war going on. We don't do battle with flesh and blood. There's a war going on in the eternal realm that you can't even see right now. And the implications are enormous. If I told you what they were, you couldn't even stand it. So don't go to talking about taking sides. I'm on the Lord's army. We're fighting the Lord's battle. This is cosmic proportions. You can't even understand it. So what I'm going to encourage this morning is this. I don't know how unified we are as a church, but I pray for spiritual unity in this church. And I know Pastor Dave does as well. Because unity is a priority in the church. Disunity in the church for Non-doctrinal reasons is a, is a living testimony that is the antithesis of the gospel. We call Him the God of reconciliation, and that He is. And if we remain unreconciled, that is a terrible testimony to who we profess Him to be, that He is the God of reconciliation, and we're ministers of reconciliation. So this conflict had gone church-wide. It didn't involve doctrine. This is a statement that we hold and value here at this church, and that is this. By God's grace, we will not sacrifice the truth for the sake of unity. But absent that, and you take that out of the equation, we're going to try to diligently work together to be unified in Christian love. But now the conflict has gone out. Once you release it, 
It's like releasing the dam and it's out. You can't contain it. You can't draw it back. It's out. And now church members are involved because it's become a church-wide issue. And what's happened is this. The Apostle Paul finds out about it. He doesn't give us any detail because we don't need it. If we did, we'd have it. And he said the only way that you're going to be brought into a place of unity is if you, if you have in operating in the power of the Holy Spirit the same mind. Here's what the flesh does. The flesh is selfish and the flesh exalts itself and it will even use the church and spiritual truth to do it. The flesh is so nasty, the flesh is so fleshly, the flesh is so ugly that it will exploit the weaknesses of other people that it sees in order to shore up its own reputation and flout and strut like a rooster in front of everybody in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no love involved with that. There's no benevolence. There's no kindness. There's no tender mercies. There's no long-suffering. There's none of that. It happens in churches all the time that people will take their reputations and what they know and they will use that to crush other people, not to build them up, but to tear them down. And once having torn them down, they figure that by tearing them down, it builds them up. But then when they get over to the place where they've gotten built up, they realize they're sorely disappointed because it didn't give them the pleasure and the peace and the comfort and the reputation they thought it would. I'm going to lay down one thing this morning. And if we'll remember this as a church, we will be unified. It's just one thing. It's very simple. I love that. I, I, I need simple things. We talked about before, you know, when you, when you play golf and you go to a golf instructor, he'll have you turning this shoulder that way and this way and breaking the wrist over here and finishing high. And by the time you do all of that, you're so contorted like a pretzel, you feel like you can't even hit the ball, much less make it go where it's supposed to. Simple. And here, here's the issue. I want you to listen to me carefully. Now, here's the deal. If we'll practice this as a church... Now, God has graced me with the opportunity, even right now, to, to, be de to deal with churches in conflict. And I've seen conflict get so bad in a church that you would think there was more unity, and probably is more unity, in the J.C.'s Club or the Kiwanis Club than in many churches across America. I've seen conflict get so bad that people threaten to come to blows over it inside the church. And let me tell you one thing, just one thing that if we would practice, it's just one thing, this is it, just one thing that we would practice that would keep that from happening and we need to practice this as a church. And let me ask you, let me tell you this, here's the danger, and we've talked about this before, but here's the danger. Once you hear this this morning, now listen to me carefully. This, You know what I found out about God? I found out about things about God all the time. Here's what I found out about God. His judgment is directly related to the amount of revelation He gives you. The greater the revelation, the greater the judgment He imposes upon you for violating it. And when you ask God, speak to me, you better be ready to obey what you hear. Because to Him that knoweth to do good, to doeth it not, to Him it is sin. And once He reveals something to you, He's going to hold you accountable for having revealed it to you. So you're accountable this morning for what I'm about to share with you. If that scares you, I'm going to give you five minutes to leave the room right now. Donna's heading out. I'm telling you now, listen to, are you listening to carefully? This is very simple. This is very simple. And I've seen this because this has been violated habitually and there's not a single person in this room who's not violated this. Not one. I guarantee you there's not one person in this room who's not violated this, including me. 
But I've seen this violated habitually, so much so that we're trying to deal with a church and help a church right now that is embroiled in all kind of conflict simply because this was not practiced. And here it is. If somebody comes to you with anything to say about one of your brothers in Christ, I don't care what it is. If they, it, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter. It could be you can you can be humble and spiritual. You could even do it in the form of a prayer request. Some prayer requests are as godless as they can be. I'll give you an extreme example. I told you this. I got a friend of mine, and he and his wife were music evangelists. And during a prayer meeting one time, they were at a church, and the pastor opened the mic. Kind of a dangerous thing to do sometimes. And on the open mic, the wife of a husband stood up and said, Pastor, I want you to pray for that man. And he was sitting right beside him. You imagine that? Husband was demeaned right there in front of everybody. So listen, here's what I want, here's what I want to share with you. This is it. Spiritual unity will be protected and guarded and promoted and preserved inside the churches that do this habitually. And this is it. If somebody comes to you with any kind of word about another brother or sister in this church, the first thing you say to them is, whoop, hold on one second. Stop right there. If you're about to tell me something about sister so-and-so, if you're about to tell me about something about brother so-and-so, I've got one question to ask you before we go any further with this conversation. And you know what it is. Have you spoken to them about it? Because see, anything beyond what you're about to tell me right now, anything, if we don't stop right now, both of us are in sin. If you go any further with this conversation and you begin to give me details about what's going on in somebody else's life and you don't care enough to go talk to them individually about it and you're, you're floating this to me and you're throwing that out there, even under the guise of being spiritual and being concerned, and maybe you're both, but it's still sin nonetheless. And you stay, wait just a minute, before you go any further with that, have you talked to brother so-and-so about that? Well, no, I haven't. Then we can't have that conversation. I can't have it. Now, I'm going to tell, tell you how God re regards this. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 18, and this is an issue of church discipline when there's sin between, uh, there's an offense between a brother or a sister inside the body of Christ. The Bible says to take the offense that you have and go to that brother or sister alone. And work it out. And if you can't work it out and there's no repentance, then you carry somebody with you. And you carry one or two witnesses. By the word of two or three mouths, every word is be established. That's how you do it. If it's a church discipline issue. Most of it's not church discipline. Most of it's just unadulterated, nasty, sorry gossip. Just as filthy as it can be. We need our mouths cleaned up in the body of Christ. We need to make sure and guard what comes out of our mouth. And we've got a critical word to say about somebody else. Even if you couch it in spiritual terms, out of being concerned about their walk with the Lord, about being concerned about where they're headed in their relationship with Jesus. If you do it the wrong way, even though your concerns may be genuine, and there's doubt about that, but maybe they might be genuine, if you do it the wrong way, it's still sin. Now you and I are going to be held accountable for that starting right now. Now let me say this to you. I want you to turn to Proverbs 17.15. Let's go over there. 17.15. Now that obviously wasn't practiced here. And here's what happens. Now word gets out. And somewhere along the way, probably Yodia met up with somebody over coffee to talk about Syntyche. Or, conversely, 
Syntyche met up with some friend to talk about Yodia. And then that friend talked about it with that friend. And then that tall friend talked about it with that friend. And that friend talked about it with that friend. And pretty soon, before it's all over with, it's church-wide. That's why God, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the instruction of the Apostle Paul, enjoined other members of the church to deal with it. He said, Clement, get him involved. And there's some others inside the church. And now we need some people to come in and help mediate this conflict because it's church-wide. But we use this verse when we were talking about the nature of God and the righteous nature of God and the gospel. But we want to use this to look at this from the standpoint of what we're talking about here. Now look at Proverbs 17:15. Look what it says. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now we talked about this as it relates to sharing the gospel. If you don't use the law, you don't use a clear presentation of the gospel to show a wicked person to be condemned, then in effect you're justifying them and God hates that. God wants a wicked person brought to a place of brokenness and repentance. And the only way they can be brought to a place of, place of brokenness and repentance is to understand through the power of the gospel and through the convicting power of God's word that there are sinners in need of a Savior. That they're hopeless and helpless without Him. That they are wicked in their state. Just like with a, a sweet grandmother or a sweet mother or a sweet friend, as sweet as they may be, if they're not saved, they are wicked to the core and they need to know it. Now we don't tell them they're wicked. We let the Word of God tell them. But the Word of God convicts. It brings about conviction like we've talked about time and again. The law is a tutor to point us to Christ and the cross He died on. By the same token, look at the other part of the equation. It's just as bad to condemn the just. Who are the just? If you're just, who are you? You saved? If you're saved, if you've repented toward God and put faith in, your son, in God's Son, you're justified. Now we talked about time and again what that means. That means that you have been declared not guilty. You're innocent of all charges. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so, when we swirl rumors and talk about somebody else without having the love and the concern to care about to go talk to them directly, we're condemning the just. And God hates that. God hates that. There's no conviction involved in that. It's just reduced down to simple, ugly, nasty gossip, slander, and malicious talk. And every single one of us in here have done that. If God calls a person righteous and justified, and I know He's going to separate the wheat from the tear when it tears when it's all said and done, but that's God's business, not mine and yours. If somebody professes to know Christ, we go with that profession. The only time that we can cast doubt on that profession is if they're acting in such a way. Now listen to this carefully. The only time that we can cast doubt on that profession is if they're acting in such a way that they're, they're a candidate for church discipline. And we go through the entire church discipline process and they remain unrepentant. And by the time they're brought to the church, we call for them to repent. If after a season of time they don't repent, the Bible says initially they're to be taught, be, be uh, treated as a pastoral prospect. In other words, they're a wayward believer. If they remain unrepentant after they're brought before the church, they're be, to be taught 
be to be treated as a publican as and as a uh, tax collector, which means they're an evangelistic process prospect at that time. We take their name off the church roll. We don't leave them alone, but we go with them and go after them with the gospel. But until they go through that process. And until we go through the God-given process, if they profess to be saved, we go with that profession. I don't mean that people can't act like they're... I don't mean that you have in your mind that there are people who habitually act unsaved and all of those people are saved. What I'm saying is, if they habitually act unsaved and they're doing something that's destructive to them and the body of Christ, it's incumbent upon us to go after them the prescribed plan to go after the leave the 99 and go get the one from Matthew chapter 18. If they go through that whole process and remain unrepentant and get out the other end of it and still after being admonished by the whole church to repent and remain unrepentant we take them off the roll and then we start witnessing to them as evangelistic prospects. Until then, if they say they're justified that they have repented of their sins and put their faith in God's Son then that's what we go with. Let me tell you this, and it's a dangerous thing in the Bible. It's a dangerous thing. The Bible says that we're not judges, but we are called upon to make judgments. But let me tell you the terms that you cannot enter into, and neither can I. We cannot judge people's motives. We can only judge their actions. That is completely in God's purview to judge motive. We're left with judging action, and that's it. People hide behind and twist the Scriptures and say that we're not supposed to make judgment. Judge not, lest you be judged. And they use those Scriptures and twist them. But if you go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says, Judge the sin among you and cast it out and deal with it. We're called upon to make judgments. What they're twisting around is, I can't judge motive, nor can you, but we're called upon to judge our own actions and the actions of others. The word abomination means God hates something. Now tease that out for a minute. Just tease that out. If God's love is perfect, then every attribute of God is perfect. That means His hatred is perfect too. And God perfectly hates when the wicked are justified. And He perfectly hates when... Excuse me. He perfectly hates the justification of the the wicked, and he perfectly hates the condemnation of the just. Equally so. We've talked about that as it relates to the gospel. That we present the gospel unapologetically as God is just, and in so doing that, His holy and righteous nature exposes the sin of man, use the law to expose his sin to show him to be condemned. If we do otherwise, if we come along beside a lost person and say, you're not so bad after all, if we come along beside them and say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, don't get so upset or worked over about this holy thing, and don't get upset and so worried about and worked up over God's judgment, don't get upset about God's holy character and His righteousness and all that, that's kind of heaven stuff there, don't worry about so much about it, and we convince them that they're not really in harm's way, and we try to edge and smooth around the gospel, 
people and make it more palatable for their flesh and they make a fleshly response to it, some superficial feigned commitment to it because they're thinking, gee, Jesus kind of died for me and I deserve that because, you know, after all, I'm great. And we do all of those things to the gospel and the Bible says that God hates and by the same token, as we journey together in the body of Christ, if we, if we slam our brother and sister, if we slander them, if we talk about them behind their back, and we act divisively, and we, and we cast doubt and evil suspicion over what they do and why they do it, and, we, and we're constantly, the Satan's in the, fore, in the background, and he's kind of urging us on and, and, and egging us on to do just that. And we get divisive and say, oh, I can do that better than that. I'll go over here and do that. I'll pull my way, myself away from this. I'll pull myself away from that. And we start going and playing into his schemes. And the Bible says in so doing that, what we've done is if we don't confront them directly and lovingly according to God's prescribed plan, it is the condemnation of the just. And God hates that as well. Don't get a balance with what we're saying here. We're not saying that at all that unrepentant sin that is known inside a church shouldn't be dealt with. It absolutely should be dealt with. But that's not what we're dealing with in the Philippians narrative here. We're dealing with a personality conflict that spread church-wide that would have been cut off at its root and would just have evolved the two people who were in conflict had everybody in their church practice what you've got to now practice and so do I. And that is, if somebody comes to me and they're trying to condemn the just, I say, whoa! Wait just a minute. I love you so much. I love you so much that I'm not going to let you put me and you in trouble. And I want you to stop you right there and say this. Go before the Lord. And if this is an issue that you need to go to that person with, and it's beyond personality differences, but it's a sin issue in their life, deal with the log that's in your eye because you've got some. I promise you, you've got some. And then go before the Lord and graciously and lovingly and tenderly and kindly go to that person and deal with the speck that's in their eye. But if it's not a sin issue, just talk to Jesus about it and for goodness sake, hush! You know why this is so important? It's so important because the gospel's at stake. The gospel is at stake. Man, I'm telling you right now, Satan mounts his greatest attacks against the church from within, not from without. Right now, right now in the middle of dealing with the church, in which there's unbelievable confusion, and all of that, the epicenter of all of that confusion, the epicenter of all that sin, the pivot point, the catalyst for all of it, it would have all been avoided had the person and persons involved just gone to the person that they were making allegations against and talked to them individually, they would have found out that their information was false, the problems would have been avoided, but now the church has been desecrated simply because that principle was not observed. The condemnation of the just. And people's lives are hurt and wrecked and ruined over it. And you have a divided church because of it. And the devil's laughing and God's heart's broken. I told you guys weeks ago, and I know any of you who have children can relate to this. One of the greatest desires of my life is that my children love one another. It just bothers me to no end. If there's conflict, and, I'm not, and they're not in conflict, Catherine will get mad at me and say, Daddy, everybody's going to think we're in conflict. We're not in conflict. But when my children do get in conflict because they're human and normal, 
and they do get in conflict, it breaks my heart. I was an only child, and I tell them this all the time. They get tired of hearing it. I said, you ought to look over there across the, across the, the cereal bowl at your brother and just say, thank God I've got a brother. Thank the Lord I've got a sister. I love you because you'll be with each other for a lifetime, and you can journey together. And when your mother and I are dead or gone, you'll still have one another. What a grace that is. What a blessing. And it just hit me one day, just like a ton of bricks. You've probably already thought this out, but not me. And it just hit me one day, and the Lord just spoke to me in His tender way, the way He does, and said, Son, if it breaks your heart over conflict among your children, what do you think it does when there's conflict among mine? The only way we can stand is if we stand firm and we stand together. Man your post. We're going to have a meeting with the men. We're putting it together right now. We're going to have a meeting with the men. I'll just give you a preview of coming attractions. When the wall was rebuilt during Nehemiah's time, they built the temple first and then they, went to, they built the wall that was around it. And you would think they would build the wall first and then the temple. But they built the temple and did the wall. And so there they were, reestablished worship because that was the priority, and then they started building the wall to protect it. And you know what the assignment was? The assignment was... Sir, as head of your household, that's your part of the wall. Here's a sword and here's a trowel. He said, you take this trowel and you build that wall and you wield that sword and if anybody comes against you, you take them out because that's your part of the wall. And what they were saying was that if you get weak and you need some help, there are men all around this parameter right here who will stop what they're doing and they'll go over and take your trowel and hold you up and help you with your wall if you need help. That's what the church ought to be. If we had a bunch of men like that, look out hell. So you know what? You take your part of the wall. You take your post. You stand duty. And you be willing to turn the other cheek. You be willing to sacrifice your pride for a greater priority and a greater purpose and a greater greater cause, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be united together. We don't have time to fool around. Let's let our children come with a testimony that says, Oh, Jesus is real. I saw Him at my church. I saw, my, I saw love at the church I was a part of. I grew up in a church where relationships were nurtured and cared for. I grew up in a church where people loved one another. I grew up in a church where they didn't trade insult for insult, but they were traded insult for blessing. I, they didn't revile and revile, but they blessed and they overlooked offenses and they came together because they loved Jesus and they loved lost people because they loved Jesus. And when they loved Jesus, they realized they loved Jesus because they figured out that Jesus first loved them. And because He first loved them, you're going to love what He loves and He loves people. And we're going to take the bond of perfection, which is love, and we're going to put it on every day. And we're not going to act with malice or unkindness or rudeness. We're not going to be rude. We're going to be kind and gentle to one another another and our gentleness will be made known to all that's what god wants to do in his church i'm gonna tell you something right now there are things that are worth fighting for and there are things that are worth dying for and unity in the church is one of them unity in the church is one of them men especially you help me with this you guard your tongue and you guard the tongues of those who are in your care your wife and your children you love them enough to say ah 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 No, sir, we don't talk like that here. Not in this home. And we're part of a church where we don't talk like that. We don't talk like that. 
If you've got anything to say about me, talk to Jesus about me first. And then if you still go give an answer and you're still not satisfied, come talk to me. Let's get some coffee. I've got a new cup. And we'll sit down and we'll drink it together and we'll fellowship together. And you tell me what's on your heart. I will listen to you. And if I don't listen to you and I'm still hard-headed and stupid and crazy and rebellious and it's a sin issue, go get two people and y'all come. And then y'all can bring me before the church if need be. I want to be right with God. I want to be in fellowship with God. I'm in relationship with Him, but I want to be in fellowship with Him. The Bible knows of no isolated Christians. The Bible says in Psalm 18.1, the, the, the Proverbs 18.1, the man who isolates himself sees his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment. That there is no such thing as an isolated Christian. There is no such thing as a detached Christian. You're in the body of Christ. You're in the family of God if you repented toward God and put faith in His Son. Man, you're post. Man your post. Stand firm. Let's don't worry about people's motives. Let's judge their actions. And before we ever judge their actions, let's be kind and wise enough to judge honestly our own. Just take my word for it. No, excuse me. Take God's word for it. 99% of the conflict that emerges in churches would be avoided if we simply practice this principle. Don't you condemn the just. And when you witness, don't you justify the wicked. You know what happened to us? This is what started happening to us. This is the fun part here. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 4. Here's what happened to us. Paul said, get some people involved. To help out because the conflict's beyond it's mushroomed into something that's church wide. Get my true companions in the faith, these women, get Clement, the rest of my fellow workers who are Christians, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, gather them together and let's deal with it. And you know what'll happen when we're in unity, we're in spiritual unity, we're standing firm. You know what'll break out? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Amen. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, and again I say rejoice. Did you know one of the greatest feelings in the world? And you know, you've experienced this if you've lived long enough. I'm 50 years old, and I'm telling you, I've lived long enough to at least have a qualified opinion about this, and that's this. Nothing in this world feels better than having a conflict with somebody and enjoy the fruits of getting it resolved. That's the best feeling in the world, isn't it? Oh man, there's nothing like that. It, it evokes joy and rejoicing. I don't want to be upset with you and I don't want you upset with me. And when that starts to happen, joy breaks out. It's a progression, really. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why do we let the enemy take our joy? It's so up for grabs, isn't it? We're so easy to sell it. We're so easy to yield what we shouldn't be yielding. Joy, an outward expression of an inward delight, and that inward delight is Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with circumstances. As a matter of fact, like we were praying over Brother Al, the greatest time is expressed, and the time that's most pure is when it's in spite of your circumstances. Boy, if you're not around people every day, and you are around people every day, and you work with people every day, I can think of people in my mind's eye right now, lost people. Lost people act lost. And you can tell it. Their mood is dictated directly by their circumstances. Things going well, they're up here. You go in the next day, and you look in the cubicle, and they go, ah! like that. And everything was great the previous day. And they're back and forth just like this. Ding, 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 ding. 
And that's solely predicated upon circumstances. There's nothing transcendent about their lives because they don't know Jesus. But your life should be characterized differently. There should be a consistency, a tide water, a flood water of joy. Look at Psalm 133 and we'll close. Look at Psalm 133. The joy that comes in being knit together. The joy that comes in fellowship. Oh, there's nothing like it. The world can't produce it. The world can't reproduce it. They try to emulate it. They do that all the time. They do it with football. They do it with Kiwanis Club. They do it with every kind of thing you can imagine. Knit together by, you know, collecting beans or collecting uh, tiddlywinks or Pez dispensers or something. Everybody's got something that knits them together. And they're on the Internet and they're blogging back and forth and they're communicating to one another. Why? Because they want fellowship. They want to be around like-minded people. Well, the, the like-mindedness that exists in the church who decides to let Jesus have its way with her is enormous, intense, and genuine. But look at this. Look at Psalm 133. Behold! How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Aaron, the high priest, anointed by God for priestly service. The greatest service you could ever be anointed to have. The priestly service to represent God. To be a mediator. To be a picture of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Our eternal mediator according to the order of Melchizedek. The Bible says He's at the Father's right hand. And He ever lives to make intercession for us. And that anointing, when He was anointed before He died in the Bible, He was up on the cross. And, and from a woman of ill repute who spit everything and was broken and spilled out, as the song says, and he was anointed with that sweet oil. And that's what he was tasting when he was on the cross, is he could smell that with the blood running down at the same time. That anointing, you're my anointed one. You're my go-between. You are going to bring people together who could not be brought together any other way. You're going to do it. You have the privilege of grabbing hold of heaven and grabbing hold of hellbound saints and putting me together with them. You're a anointed son and that anointing was running down his beard and he could taste it as a sweet smelling aroma that rose up as a crescendo of praise to our great God who put him there he said all oh, the anointing that comes we can be intermediators we can be agents of peace we can be those that bring people together and not drive them apart we can be those who don't stand for that we lovingly help we lovingly become beside we lovingly pray we work. We take our part of the wall. We stand at the post. We're alert. We're not, we're not drunk. We're sober and we're alert because we know that if we're not alert on our part of the wall, people get killed. Look what he said. Oh my goodness. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Notes in my Bible say that Mount Hermon is the source of the Jordan River. And that dew that came down there is the dew that flooded into the floodplain into the Jordan River where our Lord was baptized. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's a wonderful thing. All saints, you're either a saint or an ain't. If you're a saint here this morning, if you're a saint here this morning, somebody comes to you with a report about somebody else, regardless of their motive, regardless of how kind they might be, regardless of how they characterize it, that it's a spiritual concern that I come 
stop them in their track and say, listen, let me ask you this, sweetheart. Let me ask you this, sir. Can I say this to you? Have you talked to this brother or sister about that? Well, then everything that you're getting ready to say after this will put you and I in trouble with God. So let's stop it right now. Let's grab hold of hands together and let's pray. And don't even tell me the specifics. Let's just pray. And let's do more praying for you and for me than we do for that other person. And that we'll love together and we'll come together in Christian unity. And we'll never again, in our presentation of the gospel, we will not justify the wicked. In our church practice, we will not condemn the just. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. We're going to have a fellowship meal here in a minute. We're going to go over here to the cafeteria. We're going to go down this hallway, God willing, and I'm hoping and praying that Nancy brought some macaroni and cheese because she makes great macaroni and cheese. She didn't do it. Oh, Lord. Uh, that's what Catherine said at the lunch table yesterday. I sure do hope Miss Nancy brings her macaroni and cheese tomorrow because she makes such good macaroni and cheese. But we're going to go and we're going to have fellowship with one another. Here's what I encourage you to do. Let's love one another. Let's hug necks. Let's act crazy. Let's act like we're in love with Jesus and love with each other. And let's have wonderful fellowship. Let's, let's notch it up. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book of Thessalonians, he said, you guys love each other, but you can do better. And let's love one another. Let's do it. Let's find out what God will do with the church that's like that. Let's find out what God will do with the people like that. Let's find out what He'll do to work through us to reach people for His gospel because they really start seeing that we belong to Him. Amen.